Dang, I know. Welcome back to the Plastic Press Gang podcast. Uh, my name is Calvin. I use he, him pronouns. And I'm just melting right now because it's too damn hot. And I'm Eric. I also use he, him pronouns. And I have central AC, so I'm not melting because I'm hiding from the hateful day star. Eat shit. Come on now. <laughs> anyway, welcome back to the podcast where we go off about various historical wargaming things. And this is our actual first proper episode. So kind of to give you a quick thing, we're going to go into our first thing, which is what are we working on right now and what we finished recently. So as I mentioned last time, I'm, I was working on some Anglo-Zulu war infantry um, and they're done. Yay. All 36 of them and an artillery piece and a couple command bases. Uh, for various reasons. In addition, I finished two French, no, only one French unit. I only finished the guard. And then I also finished some command bases for them. The aforementioned crusaders that my lovely boyfriend Ari bought me, uh, they got here, they got painted, mostly. Um, what other historical things have I done? I think that's about all that I've done. Oh, and I finished, uh, did I finish any of those? No, I just finished a couple land snacks that were lying around. Um, and that's what I've been working on. How about you, Eric? So the recurring pattern of this show is going to be that uh, my list of things is about 100 times smaller than Calvin's list of things. Um, I have started Panic Painting for Nova, uh, which involves things that are not historicals, but are indeed uh, Titans for Adeptus Titanicus, God's Most Perfect Game. I have also been sort of distracting myself from that by working on awesome stuff for Silver Bayonet, which is a sort of Napoleonic Gothic horror game. Uh, I have war bands put together for the French and the British. I sourced the models and did some printing for a Russian army that we are giving to a friend who I'm not positive doesn't listen to this podcast uh, for a wedding gift. Um, and that's about it for me. I have some stuff staring at me on my desk that I haven't gotten to yet, but I, I paint slow. I mean, I'm in the same boat of things staring at me from my desk. Like I have a couple of single-based units of Chasseurs of the Guard, uh, which are going to be for use in Rebels and Patriots, even though that game is specifically for, you know, the various American conflicts. We can use it for Napoleonic stuff. That's fine. I think it'll work fine. Oh, and that's the other thing that I forgot to mention is uh, I've also been working on some uh, where I built my War of Independence British because uh, our friend who... I don't think listen. He might listen to the podcast, but he also got his hands on his AWI Americans a few days ago. So he's been enjoying working on those so far. I need to get some Hessian mercenaries or something so I can play with you guys because I I miss I miss him. Yeah. Anyway, so and then the last like the games we've been working with recently or like that we've played recently, as you saw posted, we played the middle part of a sharp episode where the Ponzi British officer gets his ass kicked by the French and runs off and leaves sharp in charge to try to save the situation. For the record, I was playing the Ponzi British officer. And then you were playing sharp. And then I was playing sharp. But yeah, that that game went real bad for the British through a combination of bad dice rolling, probably some poor planning on my part. And then also just one thing I have discovered about Black Powder is if you're playing a game the third the size of Black Powder is supposed to be, the somewhat swingy nature of whether or not your units get disrupted ends up being real important. Yeah, that's just kind of a downside of that, of those uh, Rick Priestley systems. Yeah. Is playing that small scales doesn't really work. I say staring at my nowhere near done Romans staring at me for hail 
Little Caesar. Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a great game system, but it is definitely a game system meant for the size of game it is it it is intended to be played at. There's and there's a lot of games like that. I mean, Warhammer 40k historically like 500 point games are just sort of garbage because it like somebody rolls a six at the right time and oh that's the game and i mean on the contrary like how how well did uh how, how many changes did you have to make to the standard rules for that apocalypse game oh so many so so many oh uh, we we did recently play a game in our club to sort of say farewell to our uh ninth edition 40k crusade game uh that had sixteen thousand points when all told and yeah the modifications to the rule set were extensive to keep that from becoming either a slog or just not fun for whoever went second because that's the most common problem with that game is if you go second, 8,000 points of their stuff gets to shoot at your stuff. And now about 6,000 points of your stuff gets to shoot back. And that's often not particularly fun. Yeah, that can definitely be a moment of like, oh, well, okay, I'll take these models I just finished off my desk or off the table and not use them again for a bit. Yeah, historically, someone always shows up with a like $600 beautifully painted Titan, puts it on the table, and then about 15 minutes later, picks it up and takes it off the table. And that's not actually fun. So there was some rules modifications we made to, to help mitigate that. And it was actually fun per per usual apocalypse style. We got to like the bottom of two and everybody got tired and called it. But but I think, I think folks had a good time. Yeah, and from the little bits that I saw, it looked like a wonderful time. Oh, also in other games we picked up recently, I bought the rule books for Majestic 13 and uh, Zona Alpha. So coming soon, TM. Yeah, I've definitely picked up from some STLs for Majestic 13. Some some Patreons on mom are like, oh, hey, look, there's this coincidental release of some FBI looking agents and also some special ops looking dudes for a game that is definitely not that game. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that because I think I think that's a honestly a, a fun looking game, a light little game and something we'll probably cover at a later date. Yeah. Anyway, so now that we've kind of gone through our standard like, you know, bookkeeping of, hey, we did this, we painted this. Now time for the fun part. We're doing our first episode of our What Do I Need to Know for This Shit series. In this case being the 30 Years War. And I would suggest folks buckle in now uh, because it is the 30 Years War. It's long and it's complicated. So if you were hoping for like a 30 minute episode, I have bad news for you. Yeah. I mean, well, what did that guy on Twitter say about it? Called it a, uh, a like 90s tag team pay-per-view match? Yes, and that is definitely what it is. There's definitely like, oh my God, it's Cardinal Richelieu with a steel chair. Um, It just keeps going and going and going. <laughs> By God, that's Wallenstein's music. And then at the end, everybody dies. The end, like most D&D games. So I guess at the start, at the top, it's what is the 30 Years War? Like one sentence, like the very back of envelope. It's... A big war of Catholics versus Protestants. That's leaving out a whole bunch of shit that I'm sh- that we'll get to in a second. But if like you want that, there we go. Uh, it was fought in the early 1600s, and it was it's normally done with if you're going to classify it into like a wargaming quote unquote era, pike and shot. Like it's one of the big pike and shot wars. And so the appeal of this, uh, from a gaming perspective, there's a couple really nice parts about this game uh, that I think draw uh, both of us to this setting and are things that we think are, are, are worth mentioning. One is that 
Uh, this war is the climatic event in European history for centuries sort of before or after. This really eclipses arguably the Napoleonic Wars. Nothing particularly this dramatic happens to Germany until the 1940s. Uh, and this has far-reaching implications. So this is, a, this is a, a war that draws in Spain and Portugal and England and the Netherlands and Denmark and Sweden and all of Central Europe and parts of Italy. And at this point, many of these places are colonial powers. So if you think about sort of the uh, rather brutal condition of Spain's colonial holdings as they search for gold, the thing they're searching for gold for is to keep the Thirty Years' War going. Um, and that gets us to a, a really interesting narrative place, which is that everybody in this setting is a little bit of a bad guy. Um, you don't get a war that kills something like 25% of the civilian population of Germany and wipes entire towns just completely off the map without everybody being sort of the villain, which means you have room to both play those characters and then candidly with a lot of historical war games, especially uh, the American Civil War and uh, World War II, which are both very popular, uh, there is always sort of a bit of concern, especially if you don't know the person, uh, for is the person playing the army in gray uh, a believer in that army's cause or just someone who recognizes that someone has to play those guys uh, versus... It's it's that it's that moment of, you know, oh, that's really well done, like P-dot camouflage on that. So why'd you do that, buddy? Yeah, yeah. So, so there's, a, there's always a little bit of a like, oh, please don't be a baddie. Um, whereas in the 30 Years War, there is no, there is no side of this that comes off looking good. Uh, every Everyone in this is a villain. Everyone in this did themselves a couple massacres, uh, but there's not a huge sort of moralistic component to that. Um, everyone recognizes that this was brutal and terrible and probably a mistake. Uh, so that's one of the appeals of it from a, a gaming perspective and also getting to play what would count, I think, if they hadn't named it something else, one of the first genuine world wars. Between like the various colonial powers uh, and the colonies that they had, I don't know if any fighting really happened outside of like Central Europe area, but it definitely had effects further out. For example, uh, if you wonder why the Holy Roman Empire doesn't exist, this is a big part of it, is this all this bullcrap happening, and which is why it kind of collapsed into the various little fighting powers. And then, you know, I mean, this is also not the last time you'll hear about a Habsburg uh, having effects from a war. Uh, we'll get to that when we do our World War One episode. Yep. So this brings us to our uh, the beginning of our brief history of the Thirty Years' War. Uh, the disclosure here is we are going to skip over so many things. Uh, there's some very excellent books um, about the Thirty Years' War. One that I'm currently reading right now is actually called The Thirty Years' War, Europe's Tragedy, um, that sort of takes a, a modern uh, historical approach to looking at the Thirty Years' War. But any discussion of the Thirty Years' War has to begin with a discussion of what the Holy Roman Empire is, which the Holy Roman Empire is this massive territorial span of a very hierarchical power where you have the Holy Roman Emperor at the top and then a series of essentially principalities and church holdings and things like that all held together by a web of feudal obligation. Uh, it is it is massive. Its uh, territory is pretty much everything we currently think of as Germany, uh, Austria, bits of France, um, the Netherlands, and Italy. Calvin mentioned the Habsburgs, which are not necessarily always the ruling party of the Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Emperor is elected by the electors. There's, I believe, seven of them. Uh, but the Habsburgs are, at this point, always the logical choice. 
in that if you think about sort of who was a contender for the uh, the crown and the, the title of emperor, it's sort of like, well, there's this incredibly rich family who owns half the town and then like everybody else. And so the Habsburgs tend to be in charge, which means they're, the Holy Roman Empire is also wildly entangled with Spain, uh, which is currently also uh, largely a Habsburg holding. So this is the Habsburgs at the height of their power. And if you have taken uh, enough history to cover the Second World War, uh, you'll be familiar with the concept of the Third Reich or the Third Empire, which is what uh, Hitler claimed that um, his uh, Nazi German uh, conquests would, would bring about. Uh, the Holy Roman Empire is the Second Reich. It's um, the German Empire, the First Reich, is the Roman Empire. Uh, so this is a, a massive political entity that is, is pretty much the dominant force in, in Central Europe and what we now consider uh, Germany. This also, you know, the Holy Roman Empire being this way kind of contributes to why this shit gets real messy real quick, because they're just fucking everywhere. Yeah, and um, one of the things that happens and is sort of in the background of the, the start of the Thirty Years' War is the Protestant Reformation. So Martin Luther, um, you know, nails his theses on the wall, and uh, we create essentially Lutherans as a concept, and then uh, a little bit later Calvinists. And because the Holy Roman Empire is, yes, no, no relation, uh, and because the Holy Roman Empire is so big, there's sort of messy judicial fixes for a bunch of this stuff to keep the Holy Roman Empire together. So in 1555, a little bit before the Thirty Years' War, you have what's called the Peace of Augsburg, uh, which affirms that the various states in the empire get to pick whether they're Catholic or Lutheran. And broadly, the um, northern Germany and the cities become Protestant. Uh, the south, which is where sort of the bulk of the political power of the Holy Roman Empire resides, remains Catholic. Uh, these are sometimes referred to as the Protestant League and the Catholic Union. And this brings us to the causes of the Thirty Years' War. Calvin, you want to take a swing at that? Um, well, it turns out when you've got a real big old empire, uh, it's hard to keep a hand on it, especially when you start doing things like, you know, oh, you have to be this religion to live here or this. People tend not to like it. Also, France doesn't like them. And so France goes, hey, I've got deep pockets. I can go cause some problems. And those both kind of very much like these pushed these things to happen. For example, like these led to, you know, some general destabilization happening in the empire, especially in their further reaching things. And they're just like all doing out for who wants Europe. And then these, this like destabilization led to the third defenestration of Prague. It's weird. Which means, yes, they were two previous defenestrations of Prague. Apparently Prague is a town that likes throwing people out windows. Yeah, it's, uh, this led to, essentially, this came from a desire for the people of, you know, Bohemia to want to choose who, what religion they are, just to have that ability to choose. Turns out they got mad because they thought some Catholic representatives were, you know, talking behind their back to the emperor. It kind of was. So they got mad and they decided that, okay, only two of these Catholic people actually deserve to get God. So they chucked him out a window. Somehow they survived. They also chucked they also chucked these two people's secretary out the window. Uh, miraculously, all three of them survive. Um, and and there's very fun stories about how they survived because there's the Protestant view on it, which is they survived by landing in a dung heap, which is, you know, the obvious like propaganda thing. Then there's the other obvious propaganda thing, which is the Catholics said, oh, an angel swoops down and scooped them up and saved them from dying. In reality, it's like, it was like a 15 foot fall. Like, yeah, it hurt. But you're not going to die from it. Yeah. Uh, so all of them survive, but this kicks off a revolt in Bohemia. Um, and this starts the first part, uh, sort 
sort of phase one or act one of the Thirty Years War. Uh, now the Thirty Years War, because it is such a convoluted mess, is often divided into periods or phases um, so that people can sort of wrap their head around it. Uh, the first of these is the Bohemian Revolt and the Palatinate Campaign, which basically the guy who sent the folks who got thrown out uh, the window, uh, for a fellow named Ferdinand, is elected Holy Roman Emperor. But a rival, a guy named Frederick, is offered the crown of Bohemia, which is actually the only sort of crowned kingdom in uh, the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, if he accepts this, this will mean war. Um, the Dutch and the Danish both egg Frederick on to do this uh, because a war in Germany is going to distract uh, Spain in the Netherlands and both France and uh, the Dutch who are currently fighting for their independence from Spain uh, would really rather like that to happen. So this is sort of also the first phase of the Thirty Years' War as a proxy war for other powers that just happens to take place primarily in Germany. And also, if I, if I, if I remember correctly, also, like, they call that war the Eighty Years' War, if I remember correctly, and that's part of, like, this is why this starts getting really confusing really quickly, is because a lot of these smaller conflicts that are semi-related get their own names, like the war between, you know, Spain and uh, the Netherlands to decide about their independence. I believe it's referred to as the Eighty Years' War. Yeah, there's a, there's a number of conflicts that get dragged into this. Um, there's a number of conflicts that sort of take place while the Thirty Years' War is taking place that you're like, is this is this part of this or not? And we'll, we'll sort of allude to some of those. Um, and so what happens is the, uh, the revolt in Bohemia sort of concludes with uh, Frederick losing and going into exile. And then this spills into what's called the Palatinate Campaign, where a number of German princes along the Rhine uh, support Frederick, uh, but promptly lose very badly. Um, they get, they essentially get their ass kicked. Um, but this brings uh, the English, Spanish, and Dutch all to various parts of the party, sending money or troops or a combination of those two things. And then uh, what happens is, is as they're losing this, uh, Christian IV of Denmark, who decides he is the defender of, of Protestant Christendom uh, and also uh, wanting to fuel his ambitions for Denmark to be one of the preeminent powers in Europe, gets involved uh, via a very hefty amount of money from the French. Uh, one will find that in this war, uh, this bit was underwritten by the French will be a bit of a theme for us. Uh, also note that while the predominant narrative of this war is this is the Protestants versus the Catholics, France is Catholic. Uh, so this is a bunch of Protestant princes fighting a empire that they are a part of, so it's effectively a civil war, against a Catholic power base largely funded by another Catholic country. Uh, so yeah, if you're getting the idea that the Thirty Years' War is messy. And it's gonna get worse. And it's gonna get worse. The English also get involved uh, via some Scottish mercenaries. Uh, broadly speaking, this does not go well for the Danish either, uh, who sue for peace in 1629. Uh, the terms for this are relatively generous. Uh, so I believe the Danish lose a little bit of land, but that's about it. And importantly, and this is gonna come back to bite many people in the future, uh, Ferdinand awards his generals, who are largely essentially mercenary captains, uh, with land confiscated from various and sundry Germans, uh, which has absolutely no consequences whatsoever, and no one takes offense at their land suddenly getting taken away. And these include some people that are names to think about later, like uh, some some guy called Wallenstein, you know? Don't worry about him. Yeah, he he notably, uh, as a reward for essentially kicking the Danes up and down northern Germany, becomes one of the richest men in Europe, uh, which has absolutely no consequences for him or the emperor later. So, 
the Danes are defeated. Uh, Catholic uh, Germany is in the ascendancy. And in comes Gustavus Adolphus with a steel chair to mix this up again. This is, is the Swedish phase of the Thirty Years' War. Uh, and essentially what has happened is Sweden has just wrapped up a war with uh, Poland and Lithuania that went in his favor. That was also a Protestant versus Catholic war. Um, and this is again uh, similar to Christian IV. Uh, Sweden would really like to control the Baltic. Uh, their, their economy is dependent on the Baltic sea trade. Wouldn't it be nice if they owned all the ports and basically just controlled the Baltic and viewed uh, that sea as essentially Sweden's own little private lake? Uh, so there's that. And there's also some genuine desire to defend the Protestant German states because Sweden is at this point a Lutheran state. And so Sweden invades Germany. This is underwritten by the French. And some genuine atrocities, such as the sack of Magdeburg, uh, which we'll talk about later when we talk about the person responsible for the sack of Magdeburg, get some reluctant German states on the Swedish side because uh, war crimes tend to be galvanizing. And broadly speaking, this bit goes very, very well for the Swedes. Uh, the Swedes uh, managed to uh, take a bunch of land in uh, Germany and are genuinely speaking a, a legitimate threat to the Holy Roman Empire um, as long as they have France's money. But unfortunately, this gets a little bit interrupted when Gustavus uh, gets separated from his cavalry unit during a charge during, at a battle in Lutzen and um, gets killed. Uh, so he dies in his 30s. And while the Swedish uh, army is ably led by a number of his generals afterwards, uh, it sort of takes the winds out of their sails and it ends in a defeat um, at a place called Nordlingen in 1634. And that sort of ends the Swedish involvement in the war, Asterix. This will come back later to haunt us. <laughs> so the final major phase of the war itself is uh, the French phase, which is the French, having now paid for literally everything at this point, decide if you want something done right, you should do it yourself. This involves the plans of one Cardinal Richelieu. Yes, that Cardinal Richelieu, if you read The Three Musketeers, Congrats, you've read fiction about the Thirty Years' War. And the war is now a very messy combination of the Holy Roman Empire and Spain versus France and a battered but still dangerous Sweden who get essentially another chunk of change from France to stay in the war. Uh, everyone at this point is a little bit exhausted. So there tend to be these sort of climatic battles that in you're, you're expecting as you read them for this to be like, oh, and then you follow up and you invade Spain but no one has the sort of resources or energy or manpower to do that anymore. So there's very little ways to sort of capitalize on those major victories. This period is often glossed over in history as sort of a rush to the end. Uh, so we're gonna do that here too, unfortunately, uh, but it is extremely consequential uh, for Europe that this, this phase takes place. This is, ends up being a lot of what has the, the sort of end notes of the, uh, the Thirty Years' War is uh, France or Sweden or the Dutch managing to do just enough for the Holy Roman Empire to be like, let's talk about ending the Thirty Years' War. Uh, notably, uh, the Swedes end up sieging Prague. Yep. So this ends with the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, which is actually three different treaties. Uh, there's the Peace of Munster, which confirms Dutch independence. So yay, the Dutch get to be a country. Uh, the Treaty of Osnabrück, uh, which ends the war with Sweden. And the Treaty of Munster, which uh, ends the war with France. Uh, importantly, the later two were signed only after the French won a battle at Lens and the Swedes were threatening Prague. So the Holy Roman Empire 
uh, was sort of dragging its feet on the whole ending the war idea until uh, the war started to go a little bit bad. Calvin, you want to talk a little bit about what the Peace of Westphalia ends up doing for various bits of the Holy Roman Empire? I mean, Treaty of Westphalia essentially goes, all right, let me pull up my paper that I grabbed for this, because occasionally I write things down. Today is not one of them. There we are. So it kind of just goes, we're going to rejiggle everything inside the Holy Roman Empire into lots of different little pieces. Um, these include things, these include making one person very angry. Some guy who didn't even really do much during the war. Uh, some guy named Pope Innocent, uh, he was kind of upset about it because, you know, it's the Catholic Church. What are you going to do about it? Um, these lead to uh, other little things, little known things, like, you know, the Second Northern War come, comes straight from this because of the fact that Poland-Lithuania gets torn into little pieces again. Let's see, what other fun little bits... You know more about the history than I do, to be honest. Sure I know just like the back of the envelope. <laughs> this is what it did. At the end of the war, ripped apart the whole everyone and I had lots of little pieces. So what it does is it um, confirms the autonomy of states within and the empire. So the Holy Roman Empire sort of still exists, but it does say that like, yeah, when a when a state decides something, the emperor sort of doesn't get to yell take backs. Uh, it returns the ability to select the dominant religion of a state and it guarantees freedom of worship for religious minorities. Uh, it recognizes Calvinism um, and it gets rid of the idea that a ruler who changes religion uh, has has their subjects sort of follow along with them. And it also ends up conceding land to both France and Sweden, as well as a number of the sort of participatory German states uh, alongside this. So it, it really is a treaty that has both internal reforms for the Holy Roman Empire and also um, big impacts for the other participatory powers. Um, this is sort of the height of Sweden's imperial ambitions is is now. Um, this is this is the the peak of that. And so the next bit of this is especially because this is a wargaming podcast and so we like characters because they show up on battlefields and you get to paint them somewhat elaborately um, into some of the people you should know who come up in this uh, war and who have, you know, models made of them and things like that. And we're starting with your boy. And yep, the first one is my boy Gustavus Adolphus, aka the Lion of the North, which is a, a just a baller title. And so uh, Gustavus is born into essentially this Protestant Catholic tension. Uh, so his father, Charles, took the throne of Sweden from a guy named Sigismund, who was Catholic, who then went off to uh, Poland, because he was at the time the king of both Poland and Sweden. Uh, and Gustavus takes the crown when his father dies at the tender age of 16, inheriting border skirmishes with Russia, Denmark, and obviously Sigismund, who wants his crown back and is now in Poland. At age 31, he invades Poland and is at war for the rest of his life uh, before he dies at Lutzen. And there's a couple things that are sort of important for Gustavus Adolphus. One is that he's the first um, sort of general in the Thirty Years' War on the Protestant side that manages to actually put uh, the Holy Roman Empire on their heels for a bit. He is occasionally called the father of modern warfare. Uh, he's oft viewed as responsible for innovations using artillery, uh, cavalry, driving cavalry charges home in this era, and combines combined arms warfare. These are all often attributed directly to Gustavus Adolphus. Obviously, none of these things occur in a vacuum. There are other military reformists in the Netherlands that he uh, sort of borrows uh, ideas from. Much of this was likely the development of his staff, not him personally. But 
He's the man on top, so he gets credit. He's someone who was later admired by um, prominent military thinkers, including Napoleon and von Clausewitz. And really, he is responsible for Sweden's period as a major power in European politics. The Thirty Years' War is in some ways Sweden's coming out party. Uh, they managed to sort of knock everybody who might be a logical rival, people like Denmark, um, off out of contention for a bit. They do end up dominating trade in, in the Baltic for a while. Uh, and Gustavus Adolphus is the one and only king of Sweden who has ever been given uh, the great as a uh, appellation, which he got posthumously after he died at Lutzen. Had he not died there, uh, it is potentially um, a very big deal. Like if someone wants to go into some obscure alternate history, there are paths you can draw that are like Gustavus Adolphus, Gustavus Adolphus doesn't die at Lutzen and ends up the Holy Roman Emperor. So you can sort of draw some really interesting parallels there, uh, but tragically he does die in a cavalry charge. Um, and so I will then hand off uh, our boy Wallenstein to Calvin. Well, I mean, also to kind of add a little bit more onto uh, Gustavus. I mean, while well, he was like obviously a fairly good military leader and, you know, did all these amazing, uh, you know, innovations in combined warfare. I mean, there were a few, he had a little, a few e eccentricities in combat, one or two, you know, the whole just like, I don't need armor, God will protect me, which yeah, he got he got injured and his armor didn't fit anymore, and so he decided he didn't need armor. Uh, this turns out to not be correct. Yeah, and then he gets God anyway. So now we get to talk about uh, Wallenstein, who he is not the name of this episode of the podcast, but he definitely has a name going on here. Uh, Albrecht von Wallenstein, uh, which also I'm going to pronounce German words wrong. Sorry. Uh, so he's born to some a very poor noble family in Bohemia, notably Protestant. Huh. Interesting. Uh, later on, he, you know, he does what we all want to do and marries a rich widow when he's fairly young. So he gets that money real quick. And then he, you know, goes and becomes a really good military commander, becomes a mercenary for a while, ends up fighting on the side of the uh, Catholic uh, Holy Roman Empire throughout the whole first phase of the four of, you know, the Bohemian phase. And then a lot of those get confiscated and, huh, a lot of them ended up with Wallenstein. Weird how that happened. Dude ends up with a bunch of money. And then uh, Ferdinand, he who was emperor, went, you're a little uppity. I'm not going to deal with you for a little bit. So in 1630, he retires, kind of. And then later on, he gets called back uh, to help stop the Swedes in 1632. And then he starts, he goes, okay, maybe this isn't a good thing to keep doing. I'm going to try to stop this. So he tries to negotiate peace in 1633, would have made it the 15 years war. Um, and then for his trouble of going through all this and trying to, you know, save another 15 years of human misery and suffering, uh, the emperor gets him God and has him essentially stabbed to death by his subordinates in a little tiny town called uh, Egger, which is now called so the other uh, really prominent early Catholic commander is Count Tilly, who is another Catholic League commander. Uh, and he is responsible for a lot of the wild successes early in the war. So the Palatinate campaign, uh, some of the stuff with, with Denmark. Uh, one of the things he is most notable for is the sacking of Magdeburg, which we mentioned previously, which killed uh, roughly 20,000 of the inhabitants of that city. Uh, one should note that the total inhabitants of that city was about 25,000. So this included uh, men, women, children marching through the center of town singing religious 
religious songs, literally like what we in this business call a war crime. Uh, he then gets his teeth kicked in by Gustavus uh, and is shot by the Swedes uh, during a battle and dies in 1632 at the ripe old age of 73. Uh, so in the, like, nobody is a good guy in this, uh, Count Tilly is sort of especially not a good yeah. guy. But now we come to the name of this episode, uh, which is a little, just, just once again, the greatest name. I need to pull up his full name because it is a hell of a name. Uh, Ottavio Piccolomini, which, chef's kiss, what a name. God damn. And so originally he started off as kind of a lower ranking uh, officer within the, uh, you know, Holy Roman Empire. He fought for the Spanish, fought for the Holy Roman Empire. He did all this kind of stuff. Um, and he was a subordinate of our previous boy, Wallenstein. Uh, after Lutzen happened, he was promoted. And then he, along with Ferdinand, went, hmm, I think this uh, this uh, boy here, our boy Wallenstein, I don't think he should be here anymore. And so he's one of the people who is fairly directly involved with uh, stabbing uh, Wallenstein to death. And then suddenly afterwards, who becomes the general? But Piccolomini. Who knew? Uh, later on, his other big hit was he wins at the Battle of Nordlingen. Um, and eventually he did end out the war. He survived the war somehow and was involved in creating the Peace of, Peace of Westphalia. And if you look him up, he is, he is a I think the best way I can describe is just, he's a dude. And also, for fun, uh, he died in an accident about 10 years after the war ended where he fell from a horse. Uh, and interestingly, despite being a very successful commander who uh, is alive at the end of the Thirty Years' War and gets handed a ton of land and property and money uh, for his participation in it, uh, when he falls off that horse, his dynasty largely dies with him. Uh, he does not manage to uh, create a, a long and lustrous line of Piccolominis, which is just a great name. Uh, so that is our very, very, very brief, about 35 minutes, uh, about one minute per year of the Thirty Years' War, summation of the Thirty Years' War. Uh, that's about enough, we think, to get you sort of started with who the heck are these characters, um, what countries are involved, what do I want to play, um, are there particular sort of eras or settings that uh, I want to be involved in. So now uh, we're going to move into sort of the more wargaming centric part of this, which is why do we like playing this uh, particular game? Uh, Calvin, do you want to go first? Uh, sure. We'll start with just like painting it becomes a very interesting challenge for a lot of people because occasionally when you come into historicals, you go, oh, I need to make the uniform exactly this way. The buttons need to be this color. They need to have this trim versus an actual answer here for, hey, what did those soldiers wear in that battle? I don't know, probably whatever they had with them. Uh, there's just, because this was before like large standing armies started to become a thing, there wasn't really a ton in the way of like uniformity. Occasionally you might go, yes, that buff coat was painted buff, which congratulations, you understand it. Yeah, you have a lot of really interesting sort of issues with because uh, people weren't writing a whole lot down at this point, uh, issues with what people are wearing. So you have some paintings from the era with soldiers in uniform, but those are painted by artists either working off description or painting soldiers who have returned from the war and are just like walking down the street. Uh, you have a number of Swedish regiments that are named after colors. So you have the blue regiment, the black regiment, the yellow regiment, the green regiment, and uh, part of you says, oh, so I should paint the blue regiment blue. Uh, the answer is the blue regiment has more 
to do with their flag than their uniforms. Uh, so there is, uh, for people who are intimidated by the sort of what is often called the button counter, ribbon, rivet counter aspect of historicals, where like, is this the proper shade of blue for, you know, the Austro-Hungarian War or whatever? The Thirty Years' War doesn't have uniforms. It doesn't have uniformity. If you want to paint some dudes red, uh, most people will assume they're Catholic League troops, but they could not be. There was definitely dudes in red on the uh, Protestant side, too. So you just have this sort of, I don't know what you want to do. It should probably not be like royal purple because that's expensive. Uh, but there's a lot of, of freedom and flexibility there. Also because these units are a mishmash. You know, you've got the Swedes fighting with troops from Saxony and also mercenaries, some of whom are Scottish. And so you can you can sort of do a mishmash and you have a lot of uh, ability to play with with uniforms. The other one that I really like about this era is kind of it's more about the era itself, not just the 30 years war, just like pike and shot in general, is that every unit has a reason it does a thing. Like the pikes prevent uh, the shot from getting charged into by cavalry and also help prevent the cavalry from running just around and turning guns into piles of hamburger. Yeah, you have a lot of really clear roles for units. You have sort of a rock, paper, scissors aspect to thinking about them. And then one of the nice parts about that is understanding the differences in the armies comes in at the idea of sort of playing with what is the mix of pike and shot and cavalry? Where do you put them? Um, things like that. So I mentioned Gustavus Adolphus was sort of famous for uh, having his cavalry sort of interwoven with his infantry rather than just having like big chunks of cavalry on the flanks of his force um, or like sneaking smaller cannons into the bulk of his army. Um, these are things where you can play with this, but like the roles are very clear. Like the muskets are dangerous to everybody, but we'll get charged and die. The pikes move slowly. They're a bunch of guys carrying pikes, but like you do not want to charge a block of pikemen. Cavalry are very fast and very hard hitting unless you happen to be a pikeman. So there's a lot of really clear roles for units. Um, there's not a lot of like, well, this unit is slightly worse at doing this thing than this other guy's. Um, and that also comes into sort of the uh, simplicities of the armies you want. Um, at this point, you can just basically choose, you know, uh, Catholic League or Protestant Union and sort of go from there. You can say, as I did, I want to play the Swedes and grats, you're playing Swedes. There's not a lot of, you know, if you go into a lot of like World War II stuff, there's, well, is it a mechanized division? Is it a something else division? Is it, you know, early war, late war, etc. This is just sort of like, yeah. So everybody grabs sort of what they could and went to war with it. So you, you have a lot of um, simplicity in terms of army choice, uh, and a lot of the armies are very similar, but you you do have a lot of a diversity of choices. You know, you have a lot of, you can be France, you can be Spain, you can be Dutch, you can be any one of a number of German states. You can be Sweden, you can be the Holy Roman Empire, you can have a mix of these things. And so uh, that gets you also to one of the problems with a lot of historical games is there's a lot of like, why would X be fighting Y questions? So like, if you are playing the American War of Independence and uh, the three people in your club all decide to play the British, that's sort of awkward. Whereas at this point, as long as you're not playing like all the exact same dudes, it's very easy to be like, oh, so this German army, which I intended to be a Protestant German army, is a bunch of mercenaries fighting for the Catholics now. And like, that's like, okie doke, that's easy enough to do. There's a lot of really, you know, France fights German troops and Spanish troops and uh, all kinds of other groups. So you get the ability to mix that. A lot of these countries are in the war the whole time. No one's really knocked out except the Danish. Um, so there's a lot of chances to 
play a lot of different factions. Now, uh, the next section is uh, hashtag opinions and possibly going to alienate some English readers. But we're going to talk a little bit about the other war in this sort of pike and shock period that takes place, which is the English Civil War, and why we prefer the Thirty Years' War over. I mean, also, just so you know, you don't have to worry about alienating any of the uh, English any of those Brits, because judging from our analytics, the top countries other than the United States are Canada, Sweden, and the Czech Republic. Hi there. How you doing? All right. Shout out to our Czech listeners, um, whoever they are. We love you. Also, our Swedish listeners. I'm surprised we have listeners at all. Um, but when you look at the landscape of miniature war games, uh, the English Civil War is much more popular than the Thirty Years' War. I blame this on, because I had a little Twitter thread about this as I expressed my confusion, and the explanation I think is twofold. One, there is some British media that, um, portrays the English Civil War, so people have some movies that they want to recreate on the battlefield, which I get, and also that a huge number of wargaming companies are British, and so the English Civil War resonates with the folks who the English Civil War ended up impacting, which they learned about in schools, etc., etc. There is an argument for scale that the Thirty Years' War is simply the much bigger, much more dramatic war. Uh, if you look at some of the casualty figures, which are, of course, wildly rough estimates, about five times as many soldiers die in the Thirty Years' War as in the uh, English Civil War, and the total human death toll, including civilian casualties, is well over 150 times larger. Uh, the English Civil War is a bloody civil war. The Thirty Years' War is a continent-spanning cataclysm. Uh, and there is also one particular figure in the English Civil War that Calvin and I have opinions on, one Oliver Cromwell. Fuck this guy! Who promptly after uh, the resolution of his part in the uh, English Civil War and uh, killing the king, uh, he wages a rather brutal campaign in Ireland that utterly devastates the country. Uh, we are not fans of Cromwell, um, and indeed rather dislike him, and there is a good argument, especially if you, like me, got taught this period of history by an Irish history professor, uh, that Oliver Cromwell is one of the people who poisons uh, relations and uh, the prospect of uh, sort of peace between Ireland and England for literally centuries to come. Uh, I have an another friend, actually the one who introduced me to the Thirty Years' War period, who always actually plays Oliver Cromwell in demo games, so that when he loses, the good news is you killed Oliver Cromwell. Um, yeah, not, not a fan of Cromwell. Yeah, he is kind of probably one of the worst figures in the British Isles history. And also, we could say whatever the hell we want about him, because he's dead, we're right, it's not slander. There is that. Okay, so moving on from that brief digression on why the Thirty Years' War is superior to the English Civil War, um, we had mentioned some of the painting uh, prospects for this, and we, we do have some tips for how to paint um, Thirty Years' War figures before we get into what you need to get started. Uh, the first one is, as we mentioned, this is an excuse for diversity in painting and in the forces you use. You have lots of allied armies, you have mercenaries, you have poor supplies, meaning you're not really talking uniforms. That means, for example, uh, one of the Thirty Years' War armies I'm working on that is ostensibly Swedish, a third of it is going to be Saxon mercenaries. And so I get to paint them entirely differently. Um, you can have, you know, uh, Finnish cavalry troops who are apparently terrifying, but not particularly well armored. Um, these are all kinds of ways to draw different groups in. And so that's one of the tips for painting is like, 
don't necessarily lock yourself into one scheme. It's actually kind of fun because going through all these various little things, occasionally you can find like, oh yeah, I'm doing Holy Roman Empire. Oh, I have an excuse for winged hussars. That's kind of badass. Yeah. <laughs> or I mean, for example, with the amount of mercenaries and people like that coming from various places, it can also lead to fun stories in games, but I figure we'll save that for the actual campaign. Yeah, like if you have a, if you are playing the English Civil War uh, previously and you have a unit of uh, Scots, Scottish mercenaries showed up all over the Thirty Years' War. Uh, that's actually one of the sort of sources of experience for them before the English Civil War. Um, similarly, in terms of painting things fast, contrast paints. Contrast paints are amazing, uh, especially for horses. I don't know anyone who enjoys painting horses. Uh, contrast paints have a wide variety of brown shades, and they paint organic shapes well, so use them for horses. It's great. Uh, but contrast paints generally, I think, for this era, because you are not doing, these are not, again, nice uniforms. You're not looking for something really crisp with, you know, gold piping on the edges, etc. Uh, contrast paints work really well. Uh, similarly, if you're painting a block of pikemen, or indeed a block of musketeers, but most notably a block of pikemen, especially imperial pikemen and Spanish pikemen who had slightly deeper formations than the Swedes did, you don't have to paint the back ranks of pike blocks all that detailed. Uh, it is okay to give the impression of dudes with pikes and not do that like little bit of edge highlighting or that like the little touches that make your front row look really good because no one will ever see them. I think it was one of the painters that Warlord sent out one of the demos for the Epic kits for who was just like, yeah, I paint the front of the front rank and the back of the back rank really well. And everyone in the middle is the right color. And that's genuinely speaking a um, good way to do this, especially with the, the smaller scales that we'll talk about a little bit. With those, the pageantry isn't individual models. It's the sheer size of the armies you're fielding, at which point no one is going to care about what the guy in the middle of the pike block looks no, like. No one's looking at pikeman number 12. Yeah. They're looking at, you know, Wallenstein standing next to him going, that's cool. Or holy shit. That's a lot of pikemen. True. So the last tip we have is not actually a tip as much as a shout out. If you are an Empire player from Warhammer Fantasy Battles, and you've sort of been sitting here going like, spearmen and musketeers and blocks of hard-hitting cavalry and a lot of mercenaries and some cannons, this is starting to sound familiar. Boy, have I got a treat for you. The, the Empire of uh, Warhammer Fantasy Battles is the Holy Roman Empire. It, it works the same way, except like with griffins. Uh, so if you like sort of that feeling, that aesthetic, um, Gratz, welcome to 30 Years War War Game. And if you play around a little bit, you can even still take great swords. They're just some, you know, random still around lance unit. Yeah, so uh, if, if that was your aesthetic, uh, we, we, we got you, boo. So let's say you want to get started in this. Um, what are some of the rule sets that exist for this game? Uh, I will let uh, Calvin come out in the start and then I'll, I'll bring it in for the last couple. So one of the things is you don't really ever find specifically 30 years war rule set. You'll find something for the whole era of generally pike and shot. This is essentially anything in, in the Renaissance. It could be from, you know, we started like generally like the Italian wars, which is another level of complete bonkers uh, alliances being broken and remade and like burning down Rome. And that's all a mess. We're not going to deal with that too much. Uh, uh, but it covers that till like the end of the English Civil War and you could potentially push it into the War of Spanish Succession, but who knows what's down there anyway. Um, and 
So number one, the biggest one is Pike and Shot, which is the big one. It's from Warlord. It's Rick Priestley doing his, you know, shove bricks around on a table and have a good time. And they even have a wonderful little supplement for it called the Devil's Playground, which is for specifically the 30 Years War. And this is great for if you want a game that you can learn to play in no time at all. But the downside is you're going to need a lot of 28 millimeter figures to put on a table. Uh, for example, most of the time you'll need anywhere from three to four blocks of pike, six to eight blocks of musketeers, some amount of cavalry, some amount of artillery, more artillery if you're me. Um, so you're just going to need a bunch of crap to put on a table. You're going to need a huge table to play it on, which is why there's also the other option of epic pike and shot, which Orlard makes, which is more specifically for uh, their epic scale of 12, 15-ish uh, millimeter models. So you can fit these massive games of having seven regiments of foot and a huge wing of cavalry onto like a table that you can fit in most places that doesn't take up an entire room to play. And so the one thing is about these rules is specifically in the box they pull a lot of stuff from the Devil's Playground for it, so it is much more for the Thirty Years' War than the English Civil War, which is fine for our purposes on this podcast. Yeah, but it is important to note that it is indeed the same rule set. Um, so Pike and Shot and Epic Pike and Shot are philosophically the same. As Calvin mentioned, um, Rick, Fries Rick Friesley has a series of these games. So um, it started with Warhammer Historicals and has then branched out as, as Warlord got started, but they all play roughly the same um, and they, they play pretty well. Um, the nice part about the Devil's Playground supplement is it does give another view of the history of the, the setting with some sort of exemplary battles that are then played out as battle reports in the book, which is sort of fun because occasionally you'll be like, Count Tilly won here by a lot and I did not. Oops. Um, which is fun. Uh, but when we, we step back a bit, there's also a lot of room in uh, this setting for skirmish games. So small units encountering each other as they are raiding a village, foraging for supplies, things like that. Um, and one of the uh, supplements for that and one of the best rule sets for that that we found is Pikeman's Lament, um, which is using the same system as uh, Lion Rampant and um, sort of that group of games, which is a, a set system that is skirmish-based. It's based on small units uh, and it's uh, what's a lot of people call a push-your-luck system. The, the goal is to um, activate as many units as possible, but when you fail, you fail and the turn turns over. So you have to sort of prioritize and think about whether you want to do something safe or like really risk it, who needs to go first, um, things like that. Uh, this is the game Calvin and I have been playing a lot because as mentioned, I paint slow. So things like a proper pike and shot army are a little bit in the distant future for me. It's a great game. It's easy to pick up. It's one of the Osprey Blue Book games, so it's not very big. And uh, that will cover, again, sort of the entire Pike and Shot era, which includes anything from uh, some of the samurai wars in Japan, um, stuff that happens between uh, the Holy Roman Empire and the Turks, the Thirty Years' War, the English Civil War. They've got examples for a lot of these. Um, and generally speaking, it's been a, a really fun setting. There's also one called Baroque, uh, which I have not personally played, and I don't think Calvin has either, that is ostensibly scale agnostic. Uh, so it is one of these indie sort of games that is the, like, you won't even have to rebase your miniatures. It's great. So hopefully that's true. Pikeman's Lament, since we're on the topic of sort of game sizes, is what I call a large skirmish game. It's not something like Kill Team for 40K where you've got, you know, six guys on the side. It's probably around 50 models, I think is reasonable. 
Uh, let me think of mine. I've got 12. Well, I've got six, six, and six. That's 18. Well, also, your army is a bit of an outlier since you do mostly cavalry. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I'm running about 24 models. Calvin's army is bigger. Yeah, mine is probably like a more classical looking one. And with the fact if I take, you know, an actual army and not a cannon that I can take, um, I have like, like, I would say like the baseline army is like 48 models because it's pikes, shot, shot, forlorn hope, cavalry. Yeah, whereas mine is cavalry, cavalry, dragoons, and then two small units of, of uh, musketeers. So yeah, you're looking at somewhere between about 25 and 50 models, uh, which is substantially less burdensome than uh, a full-on sort of pike and shot game, um, which brings us to where you get those models. Um, so the answer to this is Warlord. Uh, Warlord Games makes plastics, and plastics are great. Um, Calvin, go ahead. You'll get used to the uh, that one guy's face that you're going to paint a whole bunch of times if you're going to do a big army of Warlord uh, Pike and Shot. It's just, it's going to happen. They're the plastics. There's not many other options. Yeah. So Warlord um, produces both Pike and Shot and Epic Pike and Shot. So they've got the models for this. Um, the English Civil War is basically technologically the same as the Thirty Years' War. So you can exploit it for its popularity. So the Perry brothers have a wide range for the English Civil War, which is great for supplementing Warlord plastics with characters and the like, mixing up some things. You know, you can buy a little blister of like six dragoons to mix it up with your dragoons a little bit. Uh, Empress Miniatures has a small but very characterful range for both the Thirty Years' War and the English Civil War. And finally, Bicorn Miniatures has a lot of good characterful stuff, including a whole section on like casualties and prisoners and a roadside crucifix and wagons and things like that that would work great great for objectives and, and scenery and things like that. Uh, these are really good. I actually, I also have another thing to add on for the uh, Bicorn specifically. Uh, there's one of their sculptors also does work for something called Bloody Miniatures, which is really good if you want like four to 12 really, really characterful models. And they're fantastic. Just figured I'd mention that when we hit Bicorn. Yeah, that's a that's a really good uh, sort of shout out. I think that's, that's my approach to the 30 Years War is sort of build a spine of plastic miniatures by Warlord and then supplement it sort of as needed with characters and centerpiece models or like regimental command and things like that from other other miniatures providers to sort of mix things up um partially because i don't really like working with metal miniatures which is awkward for historicals um but really the the easiest way to sort of get in uh is with the warlord plastics uh the other one i want to mention is the 30 years war is is a flag war there's lots of flags and banners and whatnot. Um, and uh, there's a company, Flags of War, aptly named, uh, who can provide those, who can provide a broader range of flags than come in the boxes, can do them at different uh, scales. So for example, it is possible that the flags that were provided in the Epic uh, Pike and Shot set are a little too big for the models. Uh, the uh, folks at Flags of War have flags of different sizes, including smaller scales, so you can uh, sort of downscale the, the flags a little bit. So uh, that sort of transitions us into the the one of our final sections, which is you've sold me, so what should I buy? And it really is that this this Warlord Plastics line is a great foundation. Uh, the Battaglia starter army they have is a great box for dipping your toe into Pike and Shot, or if you're interested in playing Pikeman's Lament, it's all the models you will ever need for Pikeman's Lament. You can buy a Battaglia box set and you you and your friend can have functional Pikeman's Lament armies and go from there. I have built both my Swedes
upgrades and uh, the, when I get around to building them, the army that the our club will use for loner armies, teaching games and things like that out of a single Battalia starter army. Um, Calvin, I believe, started with the For King and Country starter set, which is great because you get the rule set along with it. I actually bought the Battalia box uh, as well, just because like it had more models and it's like, yeah, I'll grab that. So the For King and Country starter set is great because you get the rules in the box. But you're going to need flags for the Thirty Years' War, sourced from elsewhere, because for King and Country is the English Civil War set, and so it comes with the English Civil War flags. Uh, but again, that's an easy order to Flags of War, and you've got all the flags you need. Um, finally, and I think this is actually a really compelling case for the smaller scale, the Pusher Pike set, which is the epic... Um, 30 Years War set. The 15 millimeter figures paint up faster and you can have bigger battles um, in a smaller space. The starter set is direct, is expressly designed for two players. It is, it is a starter set for you and a friend, or if you're big into solitaire gaming, you and you, uh, to be able to have both sides, which is nice. Importantly, they come in different colored plastic. I believe I gave Calvin the brown troops and I have the gray troops. Yeah. Uh, so you can actually play before things are painted and have visually distinct armies. Uh, this is the same technique they used in their epic uh, Napoleonics for black powder, and I love it uh, because it does mean you can get things on the table and start to play and get that like feedback rush of like, oh my god, this game was so cool, I want to go paint my dudes uh, from the different colored plastic. So that's how we would start, is one of the War of Plastic sets, the Battalion Starter Army uh, for King and Country, if you're okay with different flags, or if we have not dissuaded you from playing the English Civil War, or if you're interested in larger battles at smaller scales, uh, the Push of Pike Starter set. So, um, what armies, given all that and what we've done, what armies do you have for this period, Calvin? Well, if we're going to expand this out to the you know, kind of pike and shot, uh, kind of Renaissance era warfare in general. I like the absolute cluster that is the Italian Wars. I think it's really interesting from like a painting point of view. Uh, so I have both a pikeman's lament army of Landsnecks and a full pike and shot army of Landsnecks. But I also have uh, a Holy Roman Empire uh, army since uh, when we first started this. Eric said choose a uh, choose a Catholic nation and I chose Holy Roman Empire and so now I've got both them set up as a uh, I don't know why I'm pointing this is a podcast I've got a Pikeman's Lament army I've got um, a Pike and Shot army being built slowly I need to get probably another box of interesting looking musketeers and I also have them for uh, Pike and Shot Epic where they're mostly just kind of tacked together right now and unpainted because I've got other projects taking up all of my time, so much of my time, but they'll get done eventually. What about you, Eric? Um, so I have Swedes. Uh, my, my last name is Lofgren, which is a, a good Swedish name. And um, this has always been the part of the sort of war that interests me. Uh, so I have for Pikeland's Laments, I have a Swedish sort of cavalry raiding force is the idea behind it, um, sort of a, a fast, fairly elite force that, that hits hard but can't take a punch. Um, so that's my Pikeland's Lament Force. I've also got Swedish troops for Push of Pike, which I need to start getting assembled uh, so that we can we can actually play and I can haul your hobby ADD back towards the 1600s. Uh, and then I also have the troops for a uh, loner army for our club uh, that are going to be Spaniards. Essentially, Calvin, when he was trying to decide, was like, I don't know if I want to paint uh, Imperials or the Spanish. And I said, uh, Por que no los dos? Uh, why don't you just uh, pick the one you want to paint 
for your private army, and then uh, you can paint the other one as the club loaner army. But I still have to assemble that. Oh, but that is that is my forces for uh, the Thirty Years' War and the sort of Pike and Shot era. Yeah. And so now that we've reached the end of this, what do I need to know to do this? Um, we're just going to wrap up a few things, which is just like, this is a really great place to start in if you've never done like a historical game before. Or even if like, I would even go as far as, hey, if someone hasn't done any wargaming at all, I would honestly say the 30 years would be a great place to start because it's less intimidating than pretty much any other historical context. Because if you go, oh yeah, you're going to do Rome. Here's a bunch of legionnaires. Or hey, Napoleonics. Well, Welcome to the hell of white straps um, and just kind of like kind of do a one a one sentence pitch for why play the 30 years war. And I'm curious to know what your thought is on this kind of like a one sentence pitch. This is one of the defining wars of European history. Like that's my one sentence pitch is if you want, if we, if we sit back and go, why is Europe like it is? The answer is partially the 30 years war. Yeah. It does, it's caused so much of everything to happen. You can trace so much of everything back to, uh, you know, what's in the classic World Wars symptom of inbred idiots beefing over turf. But, I mean, that's most wars before the 1900s, even into the 1900s. So, yeah, but I, I think it's also a, a, a setting that because this is an English-speaking podcast and we are um, largely playing games produced by uh, English speakers, this is also a war that doesn't get covered much. I um, had what is a fairly good history education for someone growing up in the United States, and I learned that the Thirty Years' War was a war that lasted for 30 years and was in Germany, and that was sort of all I knew about it. Um, this is, like I, like I mentioned, this killed millions of people. This is a this is a cataclysmic event on the scale of like the Black Death. Um, it just doesn't get covered. There were some interesting surveys of of Germans that was like, what is the defining like tragedy of German history. And this often won out over most of the things that currently just popped into your head uh, as like, no, this this is Germans, like the Germany, the great tragedy of Germany. This is the defining moment in their history. Uh, it's a big war and it uh, has a lot of flexibility from a wargaming standpoint. And as mentioned, uh, it's a fairly easy and I think unintimidating way to get started because there are a lot of good uh, models for it. And yeah, you don't have the like, well, is it 1812 or 1815 when you're painting these troops? Um, it just it just doesn't matter. And then the other thing I want to talk about is kind of what we've done with it so far and what our future plans are. Because as you alluded to, um, we have our own little very informal campaign for this game of uh, your of my, you know, wonderful. Uh, currently, I think he's a captain. Yeah, I think they're both captains now. Yeah. Uh, Fritz Longenschlangen. Versus, versus Captain Scar Skarsgård. Yeah. Yeah. Once again, we're, as you can tell, we're very serious about this. Extraordinarily straight-laced and serious. And it's just been a really good time. There's been lots of organic story that's come up just through things like me doing an accent badly. So now my cannon is uh, run by a drunken Russian engineer who names who's named her Svetlana and spends most of his time drunk sitting on the cannon or fist fighting cavalry soldiers and winning. Yes, uh, Calvin's, Calvin's cannon uh, is notorious for not firing but managing to repel cavalry charges, which for the record is not how that's supposed to go, uh, but is is what it is. 
And so I think our future plans for it, uh, we, as mentioned, we both own a side of the uh, Epic starter set, and I think we both want to play that for, for the proper big battles. Um, I have been, as sort of alluded to at the very beginning of the podcast in the uh, What Are You Working On section, I have fallen in love with Silver Bayonet, and the idea behind Silver Bayonet is essentially as death spreads across Europe, um, baddies you know, sort of baddies from beyond the veil start uh, pushing in. Uh, obviously that, if that's taking place in the Napoleonic period, it must also be taking place during the uh, Thirty Years' War. So I am uh, badly tempted to do sort of a fan supplement for Silver Bayonet. I don't know what I'll call it yet. Um, but that is that is one of the things on my list of sort of war games I want to write. Uh, and then, yeah, uh, as you've sort of gotten, Calvin has sort of the Thirty Years' War at all the scales, uh, and I have sort of embraced the notion that I may end up doing that. I will probably force myself not to do Swedes for a 28 millimeter, so I have a little bit of variety, but um, I think- I mean, come on, it'd be fun. It would be fun. Uh, we'll see, we might do Saxons, or oh, I could do the Danish, see if I can do better than Christian IV, um, which is to win win any battle whatsoever. <laughs> uh, so yeah, um, it's possible that we will just have 30 years war forces at all the scales, and uh, I'm weirdly at peace with that. Yeah. Or I'll convince you to do uh, Italian wars with me. Yeah, I could do that, I could do some some ambitious French. Yeah, well, I mean, that's them kind of up until, until World War II is just ambitious and picking fights. This is this is true. these are true facts. I mean, stares at you know Italian wars, Thirty Years' War, Napoleon, Napoleon, Franco-Prussian War, World War One. They're less at fault, but they definitely still like the very short, like slight digression. The very like short version of like you know, oh yeah, Marchu got shot, and that led to World War One. Uh, no, they were all, everyone in Europe was ready to fight already. Uh, at least one person in every country involved was just like, I want to go, let's go, let's go, let's go. And then that led to some very entertaining things later. Yeah. So, um, you have reached the end of the, uh, podcast covering the 30 years war. Thank you for staking, uh, sticking with us uh thank you uh, of course for watching uh just want to also shout out uh thank you to our editor uh aramis uh who also happens to be my boyfriend but he's really good at this and he's the reason we sound like an actual good podcast uh it's all down to him and uh i mean plug eric where else can they find you so uh they can you can all find me on a number of different things i'm on uh the hateful bird site still at at uh variance hammer as long as uh twitter remains viable i am also uh one of the hosts of uh lost to the nails which is a uh 30k, 40k, and pretty soon almost exclusively 8mm Horus Heresy uh, podcast. And uh, Calvin, where can they find the official Twitter feed for this particular uh, podcast? The official Twitter handle of this podcast that also will occasionally post our VSS feed now that someone knows how to do it and that person's not me. Is you can find us at twitter.com slash or slash plastic press pod. Um, right now, we also have some logos on the way just the artist is busy and as soon as that comes we'll be able to plug them and have pretty logos for everything um and you can also find me personally at brushes and jazz on the hateful bird site for as long as it works and you can also find me on twitch every week at twitch.tv slash nevermore painting where i'm going to be painting i don't know something figure it out then anyway thank you very much for listening and have a good time